This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Druzel Cedarquist, a Baha'i and author of the book The Story of Baha'u'llah, promised one of all religions. She also has a blog at http colon forward slash forward slash luminousrealities.blogspot.com. Again, that's http colon forward slash forward slash luminousrealities.blogspot.com. I started the interview by asking Drizelle where she grew up. Well, I grew up in a small town called Mishawaka in Indiana, northern Indiana. Mm-hmm in the Midwest, and it was, as I, it was a small town, extended family, all lived uh, in the same general area, and it was very uh, vanilla Yeah. in that we had the next, we were the next town over, which is South Bend, which is the home of Notre Dame University, had a lot more mixture of people, but the folks in Mishawaka thought that they would, you know, I guess they just kind of were a little less diverse. Actually, the community was more diverse than what they knew, you know. They, mm-hmm. And you went to elementary school, junior high school, high school there? Yes. So, you know, mainly the same kids through elementary and junior high, and then more kids added, got, got added in in high school. Mm-hmm. And then I, the, I um, went to uh, the regional campus of the State University, which was just in the next town over. So I, I didn't actually go away someplace and live on campus. I lived at home, went over to the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, university was really an opening of a lot of doors for me intellectually mm-hmm. and also meeting new people. And that's, it was actually towards the very end of my college that a friend of mine that I had known from high school was uh, going, had started going to some Baha'i meetings. And mm-hmm. um, at some point invited me to go along. Mm-hmm. What was what was sort of your religious orientation at? Well, I was just going point? to say, yeah, I grew up in the Methodist Church. Uh huh. I had found myself in uh, late high late high school and early college. First of all, doing some ecumenical activities, mm-hmm. which at that time and in that place was just the Protestants and Catholics uh, learning to work together a little bit. The Jews weren't even drawn into that yet. Yeah. You know, in our in our area. Mm. At some point, I remember the uh, Catholic priest who was talking to our minister had said that he had gotten a letter from some boys in his parish about, you know, why? what about the other people, in uh, the followers of other faiths who were Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, you know, uh, you know where were they in God's plan? And I remember that the, the minister and the priest were sort of uh, concerned that these boys couldn't see the light who had written this, this letter, 
Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, I couldn't see that light either because I had those same questions. Mm-hmm. So I actually with, withdrew from my church. In college? Yeah, it was, uh, I was early college age. Yeah. I withdrew from my church not because I had really found anything else and not because I didn't believe in Christ, but just I, you know, I felt that that creed was a little too small and I was trying to... I, I guess essentially I was searching at that point, but I wasn't, it wasn't even an overt, conscious searching for a particular something. It was just figuring out that I had some unanswered questions. Yeah, it's interesting that you actively withdrew instead of... Or maybe you didn't actively withdrew. Well, I did. I, I, you know, I made it official. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. Instead of just sort of dropping out out of sight, you actually took the initiative to proactively withdraw. Why did you feel you had to do that rather than just sort of just stop going? Well, I um, I guess I took it... I took it, it was an act of consciousness, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, you know, when, when I was looking into things at a certain point, um, the, the minister in my church had actually loaned me textbooks and stuff that he had studied in college, and sort of the, the more I, I looked at some of that, the, the more I had questions rather than answers. And, uh, and I guess because I was really actively involved with that search at, at that certain point, I felt that I just had to make some definitive choice there. Mm. I don't know. I was, I just was so, I was sort of compelled, I guess. So what was your reaction when, uh, when your friend invited you to the Baha'i meeting? Well, you know, I, um, at that point I realized that uh, as I look back on it, that I had also seen something, an advertisement on television about the Baha'i faith, had, had looked up something in the encyclopedia and was very disappointed at what I read because, at that point, it was being written by somebody who apparently didn't know a lot about the Baha'i faith, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't really accurate. Mm-hmm. And so when she invited me, I went to a meeting that the Baha'is had, and, you know, it didn't impress me all that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people were nice, and they were talking about the social principles. I remember, you know, these 12 principles, and, and uh, it was all very um, interesting, but not terribly compelling to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. It just, for some reason, didn't get my attention. You know, some of us need to <laughs> <laughs> need to be hit over the head a little bit. But I think it also was just not the particular point of interest that I was at at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, interestingly, in the meantime, I went to this meeting, and then I didn't go back to another meeting for several months. And in the meantime, one of the things that I was doing was reading and studying... Um, the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm really, I'm a poet first. This is my writing interest. And so there was both the, uh, the fact that this was really a, a beautiful poetry and it was also mm-hmm. very um, deep spiritual uh, writing. You know, it, it's a, one of those, it's a mystical poem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, in the tradition of the mystical poetry of the Middle East, mm-hmm. the Eastern countries there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's very much about the relationship between the soul and its creator. Mm. There are a lot of other interpretations that people give to it, but that's really at the heart of what that poem is. And I remember at some point the big insight that I got from, from my study of that is that I had, I had spent my whole college career studying English literature. 
Mm. And I had really, you know, deepened in Chaucer and Shakespeare and was thinking of myself as being really smart and insightful. Mm -hmm. And I realized as I was really uh, studying this particular work that there was a whole realm of something there that I had no clue about. And it's very hard to put into words, but it Mm -hmm. was like there was another whole world there that I didn't even begin to understand. Mm. And that's the only thing that I could get out of that, Mm. essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay, then this is the build-up to the next meeting that I went to, uh, the Baha'i meeting. And at that particular meeting, they were talking about the life of Baha'u'llah, and uh, they read some of his prayers. And that really captured me because... What I recognized when I heard these prayers was that same spirit that I had read in the Song of Solomon, that I had read in the New Testament. Mm. And I realized that, you know, what, at least for my, in my mind, I felt that this, this person who had lived the life that he lived with all of this suffering and all of this, uh, you know, imprisonment and exile and so on, and yet here he was consistently producing these wonderful prayers which also had this combination of majesty and humility in how they were said mm. and how they were written. And um, I just felt that the person who wrote these could not be someone who was false. Mm. And there could not be one, a, a false prophet. And, you know, and, and when I was going to college, and, I'm, and today too, you know, there were just a lot of people running around being gurus and spiritual leaders and, you know, and some of them better than others. So it, it wasn't that he was the only one out there mm-hmm. that, uh, that I had looked at, but this was just more compelling than anything else. And, and I decided then that I would become a Baha'i. Right then and there? Right then and there. And the Baha'is were really amazed, and I can understand <laughs> afterwards why. I didn't really know that much about, I didn't really know that much about the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew some of the basic principles because I had been to that previous meeting. But it was enough to really examine, you know, if, if Baha'u'llah had lived this life and he, had claim, and he claimed that he was his messenger from God, and these were the prayers that he wrote, that was enough for me hmm. that just connected. The, because because you, could, you could read in his prayers the spirit of, of who this was, mm-hmm. you know, and this was not a small-minded, selfish spirit mm-hmm. speaking through those prayers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all. I, that's only way I can think of of phrasing it. Mm. So I've been a Baha'i now for over 30 years, mm-hmm. about 35 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early on, I was really happy that I found the Baha'i faith because it really felt... One of the things that I was looking for was spiritual discipline. Mm. And because, because I had gotten to the point where I was searching, of realizing that with that if I looked at the Bible, you know, as a Christian, if I looked at what Christ said, well, in the Bible he only said a certain, th- a certain amount of things, but there were a lot of other things that people were saying that were supposed to be Christian rules and regulations and such that didn't come from Christ. They came from other people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you just went by what Christ said, there was a lot of room, it seemed to me, for... You could do whatever you wanted around a lot of issues of this sort of situational ethics and that came up that was just very slippery. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I found at the beginning was the spiritual discipline 
that mm-hmm. seemed very real. You know, Baha'u'llah didn't promise seven easy steps to heaven. He didn't <laughs> promise that. He didn't even promise that if you believed that you would, that, that would do it. You know, mm-hmm. you had to believe and then you had to act. Mm-hmm. And this was the whole story of Baha'u'llah's life. You know, it wasn't, and that was what was so fascinating about writing about his life, was really getting into all of those relationships he had with other people mm. and all of the choices that he made. You know, when I wrote this book about Baha'u'llah, I wanted to get out of this kind of religious approach of, oh, isn't this wonderful? Mm-hmm. You know, and I want you to think it's wonderful because I think it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What I really wanted to get it down into was the kind of stuff that we, by which we evaluate other human beings, and that is, how did he live his life? You know, what were the choices that he made, especially when things were hard, the hard choices, mm. and how did he treat people, you know, the people that were close to him, as well as people who were in authority and all of that kind of stuff, because, you know, we look all around today and we see people treating one another in, in horrific ways, mm. or behaving in very self-serving ways, you know, and when you look at the life of the manifestation of God, the way he lives it is is just consistently different from how any of us lives our lives, even when we're trying to do the best that we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that's so different. I guess the spiritual discipline was something that I really valued, and I really saw that in Baha'u'llah's life, but also then, having been a Baha'i for 30-some years, what I recognize is the effects that that has had, even applying it in my own imperfect way, the effects that it has had on my own development as an, as an adult, that I really am at a point where I don't enjoy gossiping about other people, you know, that it really is more interesting to be a source of encouragement than it is to be a source of criticism and, and making somebody else feel poorly, mm-hmm. you know, and that uh, being of service really is more gratifying than the alternative. Mm-hmm. I have realized as I have become a mature adult, that I have come out of hiding. That, that there was something, you know, as I grew up, I grew up in a, uh, in a situation which was not um, very nurturing to my spirit. And what I found as an adult growing up connected with the Baha'i community, over the years established many different relationships with people, various people in that community, it were very healthy relationships, and that the community itself, the standards of the community uh, in terms of how we treated one another and what we were working for and the vision of that community, has all had this very healthy effect on me, which I can tell because I am much uh, more at ease with being myself. You know, I don't feel the need to hide myself because for some reason I'm imperfect. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, we're all imperfect. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the wonderful messages that we have in the Baha'i faith is that while we are supposed to strive for excellence, in fact, making mistakes is part of the process. That's how we learn. It's part of our test of difficulties, and we help one another out with this, and we create a culture of encouragement. And, you know, this is all part of this spiritual process and this journey of drawing nearer to God and nearer to one another. And, you know, this is really... When I see the effects that it has in my own life, it, it is very confirming to, because I know that this is real. This is not just uh, 
uh, oh, it sounds nice on the surface. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing, and it has a real effect. And I think that's the reason that it's so uh, compelling to want to share it with other people. Mm-hmm. And what was your major in college? It's English literature. Uh-huh. And once you became a Baha'i, how did that affect what you were doing at that point in time? Now, I always wanted to, when I was studying English literature, I did not want to teach literature. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write. It's been more of a, uh, of a long-term steeping effect, I, I guess I would say, in, ter- in relation to career and, and writing and, and how the faith has uh, fed into that. Because when you're writing, you're, whatever you're writing, you're also writing from where your perspective is, where your understanding is, where your perceptions are. Mm-hmm. You know? And so really what, what the Baha'i faith did for me and why I'm really glad that I found it at that point was because it, for the rest of my life it was shaping how I was seeing the world and how I was interpreting my experience and what experience I opened myself up to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when I met my husband um, a few couple years after college, and he had become a Baha'i in a different uh, city in, in Indiana. He's from Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, we married, and, and he was finishing his uh, medical residency and so on, but he, uh, we ended up spending a few years in um, Nigeria as Baha'is, mm-hmm. working over there and connecting with the Baha'i community. And uh, so the fact that we made that choice, you know, put us in a completely different culture and helped um, create a whole another experience which really in, fed into you know everything else that we did mm-hmm. so you graduated mm-hmm. and what did you do those first couple of years before you got married well let's see um, I spent a year working at some nameless job and <laughs> Yeah, being English, an English lit. lit. What do you do with that? You know. <laughs> so you know, I was, and then my friend who uh, who had introduced me to these Baha'i meetings, she had married a young man from Kenya, mm-hmm. and she had said to me, "Oh, come and visit us." And so I saved up my money and did. And I never had gone any place really outside of my little town. And so the first trip that I took was to Kenya. Oh my God! And it was very exciting for me. And I, I was, I must have been protected because. I knew I knew so much, so nothing about traveling and so on. Mm-hmm. But it was a really interesting, interesting trip for me. And you know, and it, I got to meet some some of the Kenyan people there and some of the uh, Baha'i friends there and so on. Mm-hmm. And then I came back well, and then got married shortly after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we lived a few years in Indianapolis, and then we moved to Texas. And when I was in Texas, I'd got my graduate degree in in uh, teaching English as a second language mm. because I was really wanting to go overseas and spend time abroad. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so when, we, when, we finished, when I finished my studies there and my husband finished his residency, we, that was when we went to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And by that time, we also had a son. So he was about three and a half when we went. Mm-hmm. And we stayed for four years in Nigeria. Now, why did you choose Nigeria? Well, let's see. They spoke English, for one. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and, and actually, my husband was the one at that point because he was, the, he was the one who was going to be a doctor and he was really earning the money because those of us who are writing, uh, even when you publish books, you don't necessarily pay the rent. Right. Um, so 
So he actually sent out letters for, um, uh, to various teaching hospitals because he's a pathologist, mm-hmm. and he thought he could teach in a, uh, teach in a hospital, uh, you know, work in the hospital and also teach medical students. So he sent out to a variety of places, and there was the person in charge of the pathology department there was really helpful in working through the bureaucracy at that end. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, a difficult thing when you're going to any country, mm-hmm. is just if you want to go and get a job and live there, is dealing with all of the uh, bureaucracy that you have to deal with in any country to make things happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was one reason. And then, you know... It's such a, um, I mean, if, you, if, if you, as an American, you've never been to a country in Africa or Latin America or some other place, you tend to think of, oh, well, you know, all the Africans are Africans, you know. But you go to Nigeria, for goodness sakes, there were like 500 different tribal groups and three major languages and all those other tribes had their own mother tongues. And, and the, the Nigerians that, that had education routinely spoke five different languages because they had English as the language of education, they had their own mother tongue, and when they traveled from one place to another in their own country, they learned another language mm-hmm. just for getting around. It, it was a very rich cultural environment and um, really helped us as Americans learn how, how ignorant we were mm-hmm. about other peoples in even just one country, let alone so many other countries. So did your husband get that position as a, at that teaching hospital? Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so describe a little bit what your experience was like there in Nigeria. What, what did you do? In terms of work, I was teaching part-time at the Amadou Bello University mm-hmm. and, uh, at first, and then I, was, I taught a year at Zaria Children's School, taught sixth grade. One of, the, one of the things that I remember discovering there was the fact that I could have a very intelligent conversation with somebody in a village uh, and without that person having had a college degree or something. Mm-hmm. You know, having come through the whole um, this culture which very highly um, prizes education and, and uh, degrees and such, um, I, it was really, I think, useful for me to find that people who have lived a life, you know, come to ask very, uh, some of the same basic questions that we all ask about the meaning and purpose of life. And if you're talking about spirituality, you know, have some very cogent questions to ask. And I think one of the things that I appreciated in uh, Nigeria was that people still valued their religions. And we lived in the north, which was m- more Muslim, house and, and Muslim. But there was also a mix of Christians up there, and the southern part of Nigeria was much more Christian. And then there were what was referred to as pagan, which, which meant those people who were not of either of any of the major religions, but of their own um, uh, traditions. And so people, you know, we would, in the north, you would wake up to the Muslim call to prayer, you know, and, and there were times when when people got along fine, and then there are times when they didn't get along at all, that is, the different religions. And even since we've been home, we've read about um, some real um, difficulties that people have had back and forth between um, Christianity and Islam over there, too. Mm-hmm. But, but there were Baha'is throughout Nigeria, and really learning to work together 
from whatever their backgrounds were. Mm-hmm. And what were the reasons that had you go back to the States? Well, a couple of main things. One was that the economy was uh, really getting poor, and that meant there were very basic things that would be hard to get. The other piece was that because the, uh, the level of, of the way things operated there was just at a, a different level for my husband in his career, for example, in his pathology, it was just a more basic, they had more basic um, instruments and such. And if he stayed there for very long, he would really not be marketable over here because mm-hmm. over here there was a whole different level. It's like dealing with all the technology and all the latest um, advances in the um, with instruments and such mm-hmm. in the field. Right. And it was, you know, when we moved over there, for example, at the beginning, it would have been okay to go to a hospital for something, and I did at some point, so for some minor thing. But towards the end, if you went to the hospital, you should bring your own blood with you, and oh, you would have to buy on the black market all the things you would need there. You know, this yeah. is not a good way right. <laughs> to be uh, dealing with things. Right. So it was unfortunate, and, and you know, unf- very sad that we, in fact, were able to leave, and yet... You know, the, the Nigerians, what people don't understand is that that country has a quarter of the population of Africa. Mm-hmm. And to simply ignore it or pretend like their problems don't are somehow not related to us is, mm-hmm. is very short-sighted and foolish mm-hmm. for on, on just all kinds of different levels. And one level being, you know, we have no idea the, the talents and capacities and such of people if they're not, if they don't have the opportunity to, to develop them, the people, the Nigerians that we knew, who had been able to receive education when the country was in good shape, they went often went abroad, finished their education, came back to their country, and were really working hard to contribute to that society and to bring it up. But because of a certain amount of corruption and such that comes up, you know, they they weren't able to do at a certain point when the economy was going was really going downward. There wasn't much they could do. Hmm. Yeah. So you came back to the States. Mm-hmm. And what happened when you came back to the States? Well, I said to my husband, you know, I don't care where you get a job, but I don't want to live in California or New York. Hmm. And so here we are in New York. <laughs> <laughs> New York City? I thought that was a little divine humor. New York City? No. We're, we're, well, see, that's the thing. If you don't grow up in New York, you think of New York as New York City. Mm-hmm. Well, New York is a huge place, and a lot of places outside of the city, and we're actually a couple hours north of New York City. In a nice mid-sized town, I'm perfectly fine to live in. Mm-hmm. So uh, New York State was okay with you? Well, I didn't know it was okay with me because <laughs> I'd never been here. <laughs> but, you know, I had to come here and find out, oh, and of course... Came back at a time that he interviewed and got the job out here mm-hmm. in the fall, and it's beautiful out here. We're oh, in the yeah. Hudson Valley, yeah. and it's a beautiful place. And then, you know, we get to know the people, and we, as you get to know people, you know, that makes it a more, more of a home. And mm-hmm. this is actually where we raised our children. We had another son here, mm-hmm. so we had two boys who grew up here. How old was the oldest when you came back to the states? He was seven and a half. Uh-huh. So we were we were gone about four years, yeah. and. Uh, so he had actually uh, had gotten some really interesting input uh, in growing up, even those few years over there. Like how? Well, I, I think, um, you know, 
um, in some respects, I felt that the culture there was not so much of a, um, of, a, of a very different culture as it was a different time. It was more like the time when my grandmother was raising my parents, you know, that there was a real respect for authority. Mm-hmm. There was manners were highly valued mm-hmm. and taught to children. And it was not that everything was perfect, but there were certain basic values that we appreciated. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that were more widely practiced there mm-hmm. than they have been here in recent years. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> At least in our sort of that larger culture that we have. Yeah. So you settled in New York, yeah, Hudson New York Valley. Yeah, people call it upstate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what happened after you settled in there? Well, you know, well, I had my youngest son, so I was raising a small baby, and I was mm-hmm. wanting to... I was thinking about, because some of the other friends who were coming back were saying, well, you know, I'm going to go back to school and do this, I'm going to study that, and I decided, well, you know, I don't want to go back to school, I want to start writing, really. Mm-hmm. Not start writing, but write a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. What had you written at well, this point? Well, you know, mainly I'd written poetry, mm-hmm. and just before, the last year before we came home, actually, the National Children's Committee there was trying to put together some correspondence course lessons on the Baha'i Faith. For children, and mm-hmm. so I had, I had spent quite a bit of time researching the history of the faith and writing little short things that I hoped might be used in correspondence course lessons. And when I came back here, I sent that to the Baha'i Publishing Trust because I thought, oh, we don't have anything like that here either, mm-hmm. um, and didn't really hear much from them until at some point I got a letter that they had sent out to, I think, anybody who had submitted things to them. Oh, we want some stories of Abdu'l-Bahá. Who, who's Abdu'l-Bahá? Abdu'l-Bahá is the, the son of Baha'u'llah. And why would, they, Baha- why would folks want stories of Abdu'l-Bahá? Because of the fact that Abdu'l-Bahá is something that is a person that the Baha'is are looked to as an example, the perfect example of how to live a Baha'i life and how to manifest the qualities and the principles that Baha'u'llah teaches in the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I started working on. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the time, I had this very small little toddler child. <laughs> yeah. And didn't have quite the, the wherewithal to, you know, in, in recent years, there's, they have more writers' groups and stuff like that, and I really wasn't aware of those kind of things at that time. Mm-hmm. So I had sort of started out with those, and then and then that plan went by, and and the, there was another focus in the uh, national Baha'i community, and they wanted they sent out another letter, and they wanted now stories of Baha'u'llah, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, you know, I know those stories because that was when I originally was investigating the faith. It was the life of Baha'u'llah that I thought was really compelling, you know, mm-hmm. and I had read about it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't consider myself a historian because I was always bad with the dates and, you know, exactly when he was here or there. But I thought, well, you know, you can, I can research that. Mm-hmm. So I started writing, started researching and writing that. Uh, and I really started more seriously when my, uh, when my younger son started going to school. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a long time to kind of pull it all together because when I started out, I, I sort of knew what I would like the end product, something that I something about what I would like the end product to read like, you know, I wanted it to read in a sort of a fast-paced, interesting way, so it would be like the stuff that my kids like to read. I was originally thinking of writing it for youth, mm-hmm. and I used to, you know, I always read stories to my to my boys, so I was aware of the kinds of things they enjoyed reading, the adventure stories and such. That was the kind of thing I wanted to write. But you know, when I started writing the book, 
I, I didn't have the skills to do that. Mm. And it wasn't until I connected with a writer's group uh, a few years later that I really got some good input and was able to, little by little, really begin to learn about the craft. I mean, I had written things before. I had written poetry and, you know, articles and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But to write something that's really a story Mm -hmm. so that you feel like you're right there takes takes different kind of skills. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was learning. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take you to feel like you had to get those skills before you actually sat down to try to write this book? Well, you know, it was a in-the-process thing. I learned it as I went along. Mm-hmm. You know, very recently I was, I was reading, doing some science reading about science of the mind, and scientists say that it takes 10 years to become an expert in, it, in any field. By that they mean 10 years of effortful study. And they would define effortful study as being that you are continually reaching just beyond the level of your competence. Mm-hmm. so that you're always learning something a little new. Mm-hmm. So it essentially took me that 10 years because it started. I started really working seriously, seriously on the book when my youngest son started going to school. And when it, it, the book came out when he was in college. <laughs> 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 and, and in the early years, I would really get very frustrated and set it down and go do something else, and then I would come back to it. And... As I say, when, when I really started connecting more with a writer's group in which we met consistently every week, mm-hmm. and these are people who are also studying the craft, and you know, we went to conferences, we, we uh, read books, we shared information, and we gave each other feedback, and we did it in a nurturing kind of way. It wasn't a highly critical way. Mm-hmm. So that it became this little group of, uh, that had a little culture of encouragement going. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also was a way of, you know, when you're trying to develop these kinds of, of skills of communication, which is what writing is about, you need to know when you really are communicating and when you're not and where those gaps are and, and then uh, how to adjust, you know, what you think you're doing so that you can actually achieve the goal you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. I was presenting this paradigm for a systematic approach to developing as a Baha'i writer and this summer, I found scientific research to, to back up what both the uh, Baha'i writings and the artists say in terms of this business of, of 10 years to become an expert. Oh, yeah, right. Well, what that is speaking to is the fact that in the last decade, scientists with their functional MRIs and being able to study the brain itself have, have found out that the brain is much more plastic than what they previously thought, which is to say that if you don't just stop developing and your brain cells start dying off at a certain age. As long as we're alive and doing things, our brain is affected by our experience. Now, we have choices, and we, can, we actually choose the brain that we end up with. And one of the things that uh, there is this fellow who wrote uh, The Compassionate Brain. He's a German um, neurobiologist whose name I don't recall right now, but he was saying that if we keep doing the same old thing over and over, you end up making a little highway in your brain that's like a, uh, just mm-hmm. deep in the same highway becomes like a rut. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I learn to play golf just well enough to play with my friends, but I'm not really striving to play like Tiger Woods, 
you know, I'm not going to develop the complexity in my brain that he has around playing golf. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to have this kind of simple little highway. If I, if I learn to play the guitar or I learn to write, but I only am going to learn up to a point, and that's good enough for me, and I don't want to go on any further, then I'm not going to develop the complexity of those brain connections that you do develop when you choose the more difficult path, which is that you keep, you keep learning something new. You keep stretching just beyond your, your level of competence. And so when you're doing, when you're doing that work, where, you're, where you keep stretching just beyond your level of competence and you're learning something new and making the mistakes and learning from that, you're developing your brain in a whole different way and essentially, when you start to think about that, that means you're evolving. You know, this, it's a new brain. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a writer, for example, you have to develop a writer's brain. And how you, undo th- how you do that is you engage in the process of learning the craft, which requires a whole lot of work, you know, as you go along, or anything else that you do, for that matter, including things like consultation, applying the, the high principles of consultation and learning how to talk with a group of people in a way that would allow you to cooperate together and problem solve for the betterment of the group and not just for um, uh, personal gain or mm-hmm. putting forth a personal agenda. Now, there's a number of books out that describe Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, his life. What would you say is unique about the book that you wrote? Um, the book that I wrote tells it as a story as a creative, uh, dramatic nonfiction rather than as historical narrative. Mm-hmm. What that means is you take the, the, as a writer, I take the techniques that I would use writing fiction mm-hmm. and use them in, in writing this historical biography. And what that really means is that when you read it as a reader, you know, you, because I describe the scene in such a way that you feel that you're there, you know, you get the sensory detail and mm. the characters, and I don't make things up. You know, it's still nonfiction, but there's a lot of information that Baha'u'llah himself writes and mm-hmm. that and other sources that describe the area and the historical context and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's written so that you keep turning the pages because it's not just somebody telling you about it. Mm-hmm. It's really the story moving along and you move, moving along with it as though you're reading a novel. Mm-hmm. It, so it reads more like reading a novel. So you sort of cut your teeth as a sort of a storyteller with this book. Yes, I would say this is my apprenticeship mm-hmm. in writing this book. Mm-hmm. I had started that apprenticeship with writing poetry, mm-hmm. and I had always written poetry from the time I was a child mm-hmm. because that was what really attracted me. So I started that apprenticeship, and I had some years in high school working on the, you know, the newspaper and so on. And even though that sounds, that's not something you would put on your resume, <laughs> nevertheless, it was a certain amount of just learning and discipline as you go along. Mm-hmm. But this was really calling on me to pull things together and, and to really um, not only draw on the things I'd already learned, but to really reach out and learn more. Have you written another book? I am in contract with Baha'i Publishing to write the next, uh, the sequel to this. <laughs> the sequel to this goes back to the first thing I was going to write, and that is uh, writing about story about Abdu'l-Bahá. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, um, uh, it really is exciting, I think, because um, at least I find it exciting as I go back and start doing the research for Abu Baha because, you know, one of the themes that I started out with in the story of Baha'u'llah is uh, one of the underlying themes is the fact that Baha'u'llah really came to create a new mind in people mm-hmm. and that, you know, a whole new consciousness, a whole new vision of what is religion and who are we as human beings. And it wasn't so much different from what the other prophets had taught before him as it was carrying it to the next stage and opening it up further for us to really understand. And I, and I actually, in the story of Baha'u'llah, I wrote a lot about Abdu Baha as well because that relationship between Baha'u'llah and Abdu Baha was very pronounced throughout, uh, throughout the life of Baha'u'llah. And then Abdu Baha came over to the West, uh, to the U.S. and to, the, uh, uh, to Europe and did a lot to not only explain his father's teachings, and he talked to huge numbers of people, but to just in the way he interacted with people and how he loved them and how he was a real true friend to individuals. Mm. The Baha'is have a lot of stories of Abdul Baha, I think, because of his association with Western culture. And he seemed, even though he came from the East, he seemed to be able to feel comfortable in a different culture like the Western culture and not allow that to be a barrier to having an open heart to folks and to loving people. Yeah, he was amazing. You know, he, he was as comfortable. And, you know, he came over here at a time when people were very segregated in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And he was comfortable in every group, you know, whether, whether people were, were racially different or different, uh, different educations or class or whatever. The thing about his, this whole, the whole Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah and Abu Baha'i, it's really on the cutting edge of human evolution. You know, we hear people somehow putting evolution and, and religion and real uh, as being antithetical to, to each other. Mm-hmm. And yet, the, the teachings of Baha'u'llah and the life that both he and Abu Baha live show us how to behave in ways that really develop us as human beings, in, even in a very literal sense, developing our physical brains and developing the way we are social institutions and how we relate to each other and, and our laws and, and throughout, so that it's really, as you, as you look more deeply into it, is just bringing the human race to the cutting edge of its evolution, so that it's, it's that arrow going forward. Mm. Now I see you have a blog. Yes. Tell me about that. The blog is really uh, uh, related to what I started to do as I was finishing editing the process, uh, the process of editing of my book. I realized this whole apprenticeship that I'd been going through that I'd learned some things about writing, and I'd read a lot of other writers and you know about writing and so on. That there was a lot of things that I could share with other aspiring writers, mm-hmm. and one of the pieces was how valuable it was for me to, to network with other writers. That, that this whole business that you have to be by yourself all the time and just do it alone was not really, you know, that was sort of a cultural myth. It's not something that, of course, you have to be alone to do the actual work, but you also need to network with other people to get that input and feedback and so on. 
So my blog is sharing the things that I found helpful and the resources that I find helpful. And and at this point, I'm uh, also started doing a writer workshop with Phyllis Ring, who's a, another Baha'i and writing colleague. We've done this workshop with Baha'i writers, but we're also uh, looking to do this with uh, writers who are not Baha'is because the same principles apply. But it's a, a, system, it's a developing a systematic approach to developing as a Baha'i writer or mm-hmm. as a writer or artist of any sort. You know, how do you, how do you develop in the arts in a way, how, what kinds of things do you do, do you need to do, and uh, so that it's systematic, so that you continually um, improve in this, in this path. And then how do you take those skills and use them in ways that really contribute to um, society in, in a good way. And, you know, one of the exciting things right now is that the Baha'i community has been guided to include the arts in every aspect of community life. And so it's very open and receptive to um, Baha'is who, and, and other friends who are developing in the arts. And so the other side of that is to encourage those of us who are artists and writers, to develop our skills so that we keep bringing better and better things into our communities mm-hmm. so that we can really create a connection between the experience we have with uh, the revelation of Baha'u'llah and the, uh, the, all the stories we want to tell and all the varying ways we want to tell them. Mm-hmm. I guess what this brings me to is the fact that it made me see much more clearly that not only was Baha'u'llah the manifestation involved in this process of, of this evolution of humanity, but Abdu'l-Baha' was very much leading us there in everything that he did. Abdu'l-Baha', you know, the thing is, the stories that we have of Abdu'l-Baha', what I realized is I reread so much stuff on uh, so many different uh, books on Abdu'l-Baha', is that I think if other people have had my experience, I think we very much do not understand really the, the man that he was and, and what he was very much leading us forward in this this path of evolution. And I use that term clearly because people are so afraid to use evolution and religion in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what it's all about, mm-hmm. is really you know bringing us forward, both on a society level and in a very real physical way. If we are, t- you know, Albert Einstein, I love this quote from Albert Einstein. He says, the significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. (laughs) And that's exactly where we're at as a human race. We can't solve the problems of the human race with the mindset that we've had up to the present. And we're sort of doing that right now. Yeah, and we're not solving those problems. No, we're not. (laughs) That's why we're not making any headway. Right. Because we, we keep using those old approaches, and it absolutely has to be, they have to be so much changed that we won't even recognize who we are as human beings when we start using these new tools. Mm-hmm. And Baha'u'llah has given us these tools, but we talk about the, uh, the principles of consultation, for example. You know, we really, this is not just a, a simple little, um, oh, we just talk together and treat each other nice. It, it becomes a whole different way of, of thinking and interacting with the group and recognizing that as an individual, I absolutely do not have the whole answer. You know, I really do need, you know, everybody else here in the group and in the human family to solve the problem. Yeah, the sum is greater than the individual parts. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, and this is what gets me all excited as I get delved into these, you know, biographies are not just uh, old histories. Mm. Uh, you know, people think about what happened in the past. These people lived in the past, and therefore it's something said in the past. But actually, the exciting thing is that it's very much about what is our vision and what are the tools for reaching that vision for the future. Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to, to use the perspectives of uh, that come from Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha to really see ourselves and where we're at in, in a really whole different light. Mm-hmm. Now, how do people find your blog spot? How do they find it? How, yeah, how do, they, how do people find your blog? Um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> how do you find it? <laughs> well, I go to blogger. <laughs> it's, it's, it's luminousrealities.blogspot.com. Oh, actually, I have, yes. So it's HTTP colon forward slash forward slash luminousrealities.blogspot.com. So there's no www in there. Right. Now, it's called Explore. It's uh, oh, yeah. Luminous Realities Exploring the Creative Process. So Luminous Realities is the name of your blog? Yes. And, you know, that comes from a prayer that I call it. I call it the artist prayer, and my son calls it the science prayer because he's in computers. But <laughs> I find it a really wonderful prayer because it, the luminous realities refers to the realities of the human realities, of the soul. The Baha'i faith is very encouraging of developing our capacities, and part of those capacities are our mind, which we're told is the, the fruit of the soul. And in this prayer, it refers to acquiring uh, knowledge and the sciences and the arts and, and drive, you know, it, it really highlights in this one prayer the, the fact that learning these things is a process, that we have to acquire it, and this, this acquiring process requires work and, and striving to do it. It doesn't just happen. Some friends like to think that, oh, we're just inspired. You know, we don't really have to, um, to study because we, we're just inspired. Well, you know, we all have to work at what we're doing. You don't just say to uh, someone who's a doctor, oh, you know, you're inspired, you don't have to study. I don't want to go to that kind of doctor. Right. When do you think your book on Abdu'l-Bahá will be completed from your point of view? Well, it needs to be completed by December of 2008 for the publisher, but then they need about a year and a half after that to do all the things that they need to do I see. to actually bring it out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole, because it's coming out in the uh, trade, which is that part of Baha'i Publishing, uh, the Publishing Trust, which is in the um, selling books in places like Barnes & Noble and Borders, they're developing lots of new things to uh, around that whole process. Mm-hmm. And it takes time for them to do all kinds of uh, promotion and publicity stuff. Mm-hmm. So is there any travel for you in the future that you see? Oh, well, I have all kinds of thoughts about that. I would like to go every place that speaks English and promote this book. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I particularly, there are some places that I would like to go and share stories. But uh, have you been promoting the book? Yes, and that's, a, of course, that's another piece that I'm learning about um, mm-hmm. and that we're all learning about mm-hmm. because uh, we're working with communities who might want authors to come to their, their areas you know, that requires consultation and, and this sort of thing. So I have been up 
in Chicago and Madison, Wisconsin, and there seem to be plans to go out to Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I'm uh, will be in the process of contacting a place I've been to Boston, and you know, in, in the process of contacting some of the other larger communities in the in the Northeast, mm-hmm. which is easiest for me to get to. Mm-hmm. And I'm always happy to come and visit people elsewhere. Yeah. And I, in fact, we in the we also want to do some other writer workshops, any place where Baha'i writers would like and, and other friends of writers would like to, to explore those, the writing workshop, too. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody wanted to contact you to ask for a writing workshop, would they do it through your blog? They could if they could leave their email there. Otherwise, they go to the Baha'i website, the Baha'i Books website, books.baha'i.us. Books.baha'i.us, okay. Um, yes. They can reach the publisher. Through the publisher, they can also reach me. Okay. Um, and I do put my email out. Uh, they can contact me at Drew Cedar, that's D-R-U-C-E-D-E-R, mm-hmm. at yahoo.com. Okay. And do you have an idea of a book after this one on Abdu'l-Baha? Well, yes. There's another, there's another historical person I want to write about. But I'm not sure I'm going to say that right now. Ah, it's a secret. <laughs> yes, but I've got a shelf of books on that person, too. So I just have to live long enough to get these all out. You know, and I'm not getting any younger, so I have to work faster. <laughs> uh, I have two sons, right? Yeah. One of them has read the book and tells me how, how he likes it. The other one who's in college says, Mom, I really don't have time for that now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, even in my own household, I, you know, have to wait. <laughs> sort of like mine with the uh, podcast. I have a son that inspired me. He says, Dad, you've got to have a podcast. And I have kids that haven't even heard an interview yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting on and listening to those. That looks very exciting. Oh, well, I'd be interested in your feedback. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'd like to interview you and find out. Where you have come from, and <laughs> you you wouldn't happen to know Pat McGraw, would you? Yeah, <laughs> she she said exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> At the and in fact, she she did interview me for like ten minutes or fifteen minutes. <laughs> well, Drusella, it was a pleasure to speak with you, and I hope the best for you in the future. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Drusel Cedarquist. A Baha'i and author of the book, The Story of Baha'u'llah, Promised One of All Ages. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
off starboard bow Feel the spirit rising Hear the mighty shout Oh, watch the whole creation Turning inside out He's making his will made at the table Talking about an end to war We need more than chess moves We gotta open up the door oh, And let a little sunlight Shine on each end This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.